Hello, listeners, and welcome to Fighting Failure, the podcast where we discuss solutions to the climate crisis. In this episode, co-hosted by Hisham and I, we're going to be discussing, is Cal a sin? And on today's episode, we also have a very special guest. Can you please introduce yourself for the listeners? Hi, I'm Clement Jin. Um, I'll pronounce he, him, please. Um, and I, I come into this argument or this discussion, I guess, as pretty adamant meat eater. I think it's, it's all right. So we'll see if I get convinced here today. <laughs> okay, great. Who's got music on in the background? Who's playing music? I hear no music. I can't hear anything. Oh, it might be... Someone's mowing my... Oh my god, my dad's music is coming through my (laughs) headphones. This is so annoying, sharing Spotify. Oscar, this is going to be a pain for you to edit later. Um, Well, it's only been... (laughs) Two minutes of the worst audio. Guys, please be quiet. Please be quiet. Okay, no, but I've got a microphone this time, and I haven't had a microphone. Okay, so in this episode, we are going to be discussing this book it's called defending beef the ecological and nutritional case for meat and not noticeably not the ethical case for me the second edition which means it is better hopefully uh and it's by nicola hahn nyman who is a former vegetarian and cattle rancher in california so certainly not a biased source and also an environmentalist and someone who's been involved in a lot of researching case studies on beef and the implications, environmental implications of such. Yeah, so she worked as an environmental lawyer for many, many years with the Waterkeeper Alliance, which was, I understand, to be some sort of government-funded thing, which was working on the idea of, uh, well, uh, preventing water pollution as a result of agriculture. And so through her job there, she encountered a lot of different... uh, animal agriculture facilities basically factory farms that were extremely extremely polluting um and so what she tells in the story is that in college she became a vegetarian as a result of the environmental implications of eating meat and she stayed a vegetarian for many many years until she finally started eating a steak and there's this very well narrated part about when she had her first bite in like 20 years into a juicy beef burger and whatever uh, at, because she had you mean working on the ranch and she thought oh actually this is something I can support so it's an interesting book and it goes through a lot of different sections a lot of chapters so if I just go on my Kindle here and I look at the contents so we have the first section is called cattle environment and culture we have the climate change case something I can't it says dot 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 all food is grass water biodiversity overgrazing and people then we have whoops beef food and health and so we have health claims against beef and beef is good food and finally critique and final analysis a critique what's the matter with dot 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 and final analysis why eat animals and then like the last 70 percent of the book is just quotation sorry not quotations but sources um but actually interestingly she does quote herself a lot in the sources which i found interesting to say the least um, although, to be fair, she has written a prior book about eating meat called Righteous Pork Chop that made up a large number of the sources. And then also some of them were not so much sources as links to articles she'd p- written previously. But anyway, uh, I think there is something to be said about critiquing, not just saying, oh, it's all cited, that makes it good, like because it seems that uh, she quotes Alan Savory a lot, which is contentious in the scientific community. And she also quotes uh, certain like 
pro-animal agriculture magazines. And while that's not necessarily to say that they can't be trusted at all, it's important to look for impartial scientific sources that are widely agreed on in terms of the statistics. But other than that, I think we're just going to go through this book chronologically and see what we think about the different things and points that she brings up about eating cattle. Yeah. So one of the first points that she makes really early on in the book is may you always appreciate cattle for the food and the life they've provided you. And so this is actually the sort of dedication of the book. Before you even open the book, you start reading. It says to my, like, I think it's like her children. It's like, may you always appreciate cattle for the food and life they've provided you. And I thought, well, I found that quotation a bit interesting to say the least, because it seems a bit, a bit, I don't know, passive aggressive doesn't feel like the right word, but it's, it's sort of, I, I, I really don't know how to phrase this, but it, if you're trying to open an impartial scientific book about the ecological and nutritional case for meat, it feels a bit disingenuous almost to open it with a very biased statement about um, her children appreciating cattle for the food and life they provided them, especially when I think the scientific consensus would be that you don't need cattle to have food and to have a life, if you, if you understand what I mean, right? Yeah, but I think she's kind of making the assumption that, you know, if you are someone who does eat beef, then um, I think she's just kind of highlighting the importance and significance of that. And I think she is right to open it with this appreciation for the cattle themselves. But it does seem like it could imply that, you know, this book is slightly biased, you know, coming straight from this kind of like forward because it does seem like she's making the assumption that you are eating beef um which is quite a big assumption to make yeah. nowadays and yeah and i think it is dedicated to her children not necessarily the reader but just to open a sort of scientific unbiased book like that doesn't bode well if you understand what i mean I feel like it's a bit of a, it's really a really specific point. Like, I think to appreciate all food is something we should all do, right? Like, it's not, we, sh we shouldn't just be appreciating beef for the food and life that it gives us. We should be appreciating everything we eat, the vegetables, you know, the dairy, the milk, or whatever we're eating. Yeah, <laughs> I think she's just, you know, trying to be specific in her introduction. And I think that, you know, if it, I don't remember, you know, super well because I really started this book over the summer but um you know if she is dedicating this to her children then you know it does seem like you know it's a fair thing to say if you know her children have grown up you know the sons and daughters of cattle of a cattle rancher and an environmentalist yeah, like ranches. you can understand you know <laughs> but anyway let's move on from that <clears throat> yeah so I think what she says at the opening of her first chapter, which is the climate change case against cattle, the subtitle is sorting factor and fiction. And in all honesty, I think that's a perfectly valid point to make is that I'm sure there's a lot of stuff that's maybe not completely scientifically accurate said about cattle. But that said, there's also stuff that is. Um, so sorting fact from fiction does seem like a sensible start. So she says, for decades, the primary environmental objection to beef was overgrazing. So that's quite interesting is because I think we've definitely seen that there can be a correlation made between cattle ranching and the degradation of soils, um, even if the cattle are sort of raised openly. And I think 
a lot of this book is to debunk that idea of overgrazing because actually what we see is that using a huge amount of chemical fertilizers and chemical pesticides on normal crops is what really can destroy the soils and that's what we discussed a lot in our agriculture section back in 2021 actually i think i don't really disagree with a lot of the points she makes about overgrazing not being the problem with cattle but i don't think nowadays that that's the primary objection anyway i think most people are complaining more about the methane emissions and perhaps also about the treatment of cattle so i'll just pick that up and um expand you know briefly um I do want to say, though, <clears throat> sorry, my throat's really um, clogged, uh, just allergies. Um, I think that something which I liked that she kind of put out early on in the book as well was that um, beef, you know, although there's numerous problems with them, I think a lot of those problems are kind of overlooked. And I think people have focused on other problems which have been, you know, oversimplified, you know, over decades of anti-cow campaigns. And now cows have just been, cattle have just been stigmatized altogether. And that's not really a solution to anything. So I think it was really important to bring that up because, I mean, you hear about this everywhere. Like in school, you'll hear about it. At home, you'll hear about it from your friends. It comes up in discussion. It comes up everywhere. Like, what are the implications of cattle? And there's always this common thread of cows ruminate, which is the process of like regurgitating their food. So burping and, and throwing up their food, chewing it, chewing the cud and swallowing it again. And in that process, you know, they release methane or methane. And like, I think um, that that's just something which has been so, you know, exaggerated throughout the years that, now it's just something which people say to kind of be able to stigmatize cattle. And I think that's something that we have to move away from. And I think we have to focus on other points um, within this debate. Yeah, I think it's definitely true that there's a lot of nuance within the argument against cattle. And, for example, a big decision between uh, factory farming cattle, i.e. on feedlots, and grass-fed cattle, as well as um, across the meat industry as a whole, from an ethical point of view, I think it's pretty obvious if you... I don't think there's much nuance in terms of making exceptions, but I think from an environmental point of view, although on a whole, uh, a plant-based diet has been shown to be much more environmental beneficial than an omnivorous one, I think there is a nuance to be had. For example, could grass-fed beef actually be good for the environment, or are there certain practices which are allowable if performed sustainably? Um, and so those are sort of questions that we can be asking kind of elaborate on that. Um, although in general, um, definitely in general, um, vegetarianism and veganism are safer bets environmentally, like they're definitely more environmentally friendly on the whole. Okay, so I just wanted to interject here in the edit to sort of explain a bit of the terms that we're going to be using. So throughout this episode, we're going to be referring to veganism or the vegan diet. However, I think it's important to note that what the term vegan actually means is rather than just a fad diet, it's a philosophy of not exploiting animals. So that means obviously not eating animals or animal products, but also no, not drinking wine that's been clarified with animal products or not wearing leather, wool, other animal products, not exploiting animals for entertainment. So stuff like horse riding and circuses. So I think 
uh, generally, it's preferable to use the term plant-based diet to talk about just the diet part of veganism. But uh, in this episode, we're going to be using those terms interchangeably. And if we say vegan diet, what we mean is plant-based diet, uh, rather than necessarily adhering to the entire vegan philosophy. And go back to episode five and listen to vegetarianism and veganism, friend or foe. But um, really, like, there's a lot of unsustainable practices within the planting and harvesting of crops, such as the overuse of pesticides, fertilizers, tillage like, isn't the way that they're planted. So kind of hoeing these deep um, rows in the land so we can plant the seeds or for water collection. There's so many unsustainable practices within plants as well that have just been overlooked because people are so focused on cattle. And I think the thing is that if cattle can be sustainably raised and, um, you know, and you're comparing that to unsustainably sourced vegetables or fruits, then, you know, there's a good chance that the cattle might actually be more beneficial. So it also depends on where you are in the world um, and kind of the effect that your diet has on the environment. Like I know that in Malawi, people aren't deforesting for cattle pastures. Like unless you're buying the beef that's been imported from South Africa, I think it's all pretty sustainable. None of it's really GMO, like it's all sustainable. And the thing is that vegetables here, a lot of the vegetables that are locally grown, like a lot of the maize, the corn is um, tilled and then they use pesticides and then they throw on some fertilizer. And it's like, everything's being done wrong in the, you know, um, on, on the other side, on the flip side. So I think it's just something you have to always take into account is really like both sides, you know, where where is everything coming from, from both sides, rather than just taking this monotone view on cattle and the way that they ruminate and then having that influence your diet. Yeah, and I don't know if that's necessarily true that cattle isn't produced with GMO because most cattle uh, is raised on feedlots for most of their life and most feedlot cattle, uh, maybe not specifically in the US, but across the world, most feedlot cattle are fed with GMO soy. I think something like upwards of 70% of Brazilian soy, which is GMO, is exported to feed cattle rather than humans. So I think it's important to note that, and this is an argument across the meat industry, is that what we feed uh, animals is really important because uh, sort of in general or on average, uh, you need to give feed an animal about 10 calories in order to be able to eat one calorie of animal flesh. So for example, I could, if we feed beef 10 kilos of soy, we're only going to get one kilo sort of of beef flesh. Uh, now, those sort of statistics vary, but you're never going to get the same amount of uh, re- uh, nutrition um, it, as if you just ate the stuff you fed to the cows or any other Uh, So that's like the main argument or one of the big arguments for vegetarianism is that you're cutting out that middleman, right? The cow is not necessary for for you to gain the nutrition you need. And all it's doing is just sort of Mm -hmm. like making that process of taking in nutrition more inefficient for you because it has to go through the cow before it gets to you. Yeah, for sure. And also something people say is, and this is a big argument made by the book, is that, oh, but beef is really nutritional. And that's 
completely correct. Beef is much more nutritional. And something that's really interesting that we'll go into later is about sort of nutritional studies and what stuff you can get. But one thing that I've heard a lot when I've told people, you know, I'm going vegetarian, I'm going vegan is, you know, uh, oh, how are you going to get your vitamin B12? Uh, And while it's true that milk is a source of vitamin B12, not only are most dairy-free milk products um, fortified with vitamin B12, but actually it's quite common nowadays to have to supplement B12 for cattle. Um, so that's even more middleman uh, stuff going on there as well. Yeah, which kind of leads me to the next, to my next bigger point, which is that, um, you know, it's not the cow, it's the how, right? Isn't that a quote from the book? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's not the cow, it's the how. Oh yeah, that's that's yeah. the book's mantra. Yeah, that's the, really that's the main point um, and the most important point delivered in the book is that it's not the cow, it's the how. It's how the cattle is raised. And so yeah. um, I don't know, Oscar, if you've highlighted anywhere that statistic on um, cattle feed, but of course, like you were saying, oh, yeah. it's wholly unsustainable to like think about, you know, okay, first of all, to get the soy feed, which a lot of the world's cattle, um, you know, large-scale meat industry cattle is being fed on, um, they have to, A, deforest the Amazon rainforest, which for obvious reasons is not, you know, a good thing. And then B, they have to plant it. So they plant it in unsustainable methods. They spray pesticides all over it. They throw fertilizers on there. And then C, then they harvest it using unsustainable practices. Then they ship it, you know, halfway across the world. And then they have to mill it, which is also like hugely unsustainable. And it takes out all the nutritional value. And then they feed it to the cattle. And so at that point, what you've done, you've you've gone in this crazy cycle and you've ended up actually putting out ridiculous emissions through just getting the feed to the cattle. Um, and I think that this is a big, um, a big you know, problem which is overlooked because I think people are so focused on the cattle themselves ruminating and putting off methane. But really the the biggest problem is is what we feed them with. And so the feed is unsustainable and then the feed has a great effect on how the cattle ruminate. So what cattle ruminate, which means that they regurgitate their food so that they can re-chew the cud and absorb more nutrients from the cud. And they do that so that they can get the most nutritional value out of everything which they eat. So they're actually really good at, at you know, taking what is provided to them and turning that into something that's nutritionally beneficial to them. But when we feed them this, you know, GMO unsustainable corn or the soy that we just mentioned, um, you know, what's happening is that there's such low nutritional value in that especially after it's been milled and dried and you know gone through that whole process that they need to ruminate more to be able to get you know a fraction of the nutritional value which they need out of that and so then what happens is that they regurgitate the food more and then you know evidently they put off more methane and then that's really this the source of that whole problem with the methane as a result of cows ruminating. And it's all because, or it's primarily because of what we're feeding them. Like, I wouldn't say that cattles are 
you know, intricately bad for the environment because they ruminate. Like, if you, if your point is that, you know, cattle are bad for the environment because they ruminate, then, you know, Eland and all these wild anim- all these wild ruminators should also be considered bad for the environment and should be, you know, hunted down and eliminated if your point is that cattle are bad, you know, specifically because they ruminate. And so I think that it's, you know, I think that that was one of my, the highlights of the book for me was that she really went into the, it's, it's, um, it's not the cow, it's the, it's the how. Yeah, I mean, I, I totally agree with it's not the cow, it's the how, but I also don't know if that point holds any specific sort of weight because you could say that about just about anything. It's just that cow and how rhyme. I could say, well, it's not the soy, it's the how. It doesn't sound as good, but I think it's, it doesn't, while it's true, it's not really that useful to say, oh, well, did you know that the environmental impact of something changes based on how you make it? Uh, so while it's a valid point, I think it's not necessarily the most important to make. And I also have to disagree with your point about the ruminating being entirely a product of soy production is well documented that uh, cows on grass also produce large amounts of methane and while that's certainly amplified by soy production cattle aren't necessarily immune when they're on grass yeah no i don't think you understood what my point was about sorry my point about the rumination was that cattles are proven to ruminate more when they're fed with um soy and corn than when they graze and so what what's happening is that you're making it so you know you know industrial soy fed beef um is significantly more detrimental to the environment than pasture fed beef than sustainable pasture fed beef because um their their process of ruminating under those circumstances are a lot more significant and a lot put off a lot more emissions and are therefore a lot more harmful to the environment. That was my point. My point was not that, my point was not that, you know, cattle don't ruminate when grass-fed, or and that you know, because of course, you know, the rumination of cattle under any circumstances is not a good thing, and so therefore the overpopulation of cattle on the planet, each of them having to ruminate to to get the food which they need is not a good thing but it's the same thing as saying like humans fart so we should kill all humans because humans fart and humans breathe like that's not the point that I think we should be making especially as environmentalists like from an environmental standpoint I don't think that's that's the point we should be making because humans and cattle aren't bad because they're bad they're bad because we've enabled them we've like empowered them in such a way that they are bad for the environment. And we've also overpopulated them. We've enabled overpopulation of both human and cattle. And that is the root source of the problem. It's not that um, cattle are bad because they ruminate, because they burp, it's, or because humans are bad because they fart or breathe and exhale CO2 as part of the respiration process. Like That's not the point that I think anyone should be making. And that was really what I was trying to get across. I think I'd agree with Hisho here. Like, I think cows maybe aren't as intrinsically bad as we might think they are, but I think it's the practices that we implement to try and farm them and grow them and sort of, as Hisho was saying, like transport their feed around the world that makes it a lot worse than it could be. And I think there's an argument there that 
maybe we don't all have to go vegetarian or everybody just eat meat and abandon these cows, is that we should sort of improve the practices by which we feed the cows and by which we raise the cows so that they are more environmentally friendly. Because lots of the emissions that are you know produced by raising cows, it's because of sort of inefficiencies and really bad, bad decisions made by the meat industry. Yeah, I think that's the point that the book is absolutely trying to get at. And I think I think it's a fair point is that cow aren't naturally bad because cows are just members of the ruminant family. And if I scroll down and try and find this note that I was just looking at before... Where is it? 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 Where this is can it? be edited out, right? This is, this is perfect. Yeah, 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 yeah. Here we go. Bison, antelope, moose, alpacas, yak, gazelles, deer, elk, camels, and caribou are all grazing animals uniquely able to live from grass and other cellulosic plants on which humans themselves cannot survive. And I think this is a really, really good uh, point to make because it's cows are just one of many different ruminant species, all of which have the same sort of ruminant stuff that they do with chewing the cud and being able to survive off grass. And I think this is one of the big points that I feel like with animal agriculture is that we're feeding them stuff that is otherwise human edible and has been grown on land that is otherwise useful to grow crops directly for human consumption. But I think something that's really important to understand about cows is that they can be entirely grass-fed. They they can be grass-fed, which means that we don't need to feed them anything uh, that was made on human land. And I think that's a big point that she makes in the book as well about the practicalities is that a lot of, um, that a lot of the grassland that uh, pasture-raised and grass-fed beef are raised on is actually not fit for crops. You couldn't grow crops on it because it's not arable in that way. However, I think it's important to note that feedlots are much more efficient in terms of land use for how many cows they can produce. So while we could absolutely have a system where people eat cattle, eat beef burgers uh, from sustainably raised cattle that are carbon negative because they're grown on grass and it's ecosystem positive or whatever, I think it's important to note that there's no way we could sustain our current level of beef uh, consumption if we could only raise beef sustainably, especially as with a growing population, we need to have more land to grow crops for human use. Uh, I think... Uh, and I think that's a really important point to make. I think, yeah, beef is sort of just intrinsically worse for the environment and more inefficient than um, plants are because, uh, yeah, yeah, beef is the middle man. By nature, it's impossible. Yeah, by nature, yeah. Um, the cows or an animal has to eat the plant and then grow it into meat, which is, yet by nature, just a lot more inefficient. Yeah, because the cow has to move around, and that's using energy that we could have otherwise gotten directly from the plant. And I think something else that she says is that the book is titled Defending Beef, and the subtitle is The Ecological and Nutritional Case for Meat. But she actually gives no case for meat at all. The only case she gives is that in some specific circumstances, which are inefficient for land use, that beef production can be somewhat sustainable. And also, vegan groups are misrepresenting statistics and the FAO's Livestock's Long Shadow Report is somewhat wrong. But at the end, she says that uh, that she eats, you know, like a very wholesome diet of locally grown beef from her ranch and... Uh, turkeys that are pasture fed and I think she sort of evades a bit of a bullet there because she says she says here that uh oh my gosh I, I cannot find this stuff uh, where's let me search for turkey one sec 
I think one of the problems that are with that argument is that not everyone has access to that sort of sustainable beef, right? Like locally exactly. um, ranch-grown cows and corn-fed turkeys or whatever. Is that lots of people don't have that choice to choose between sustainable mm-hmm. and unsustainable things. And something that Bill Gates goes um, talks about is this sort of green premium, the price extra oh, you yeah. have to pay to have something sustainable. And some people in some cases just can't afford that green premium. And so, you know, I think her point sort of applies to a a lot smaller number of people than she might first make out. And I think also something that we mentioned in our previous um, beef and cattle episode about the meat industry with, I think, Theo Ansel as a guest, perhaps. Ansel, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, no, we had Um, him on for eating Yeah, go back and listen to that. But um, one of the points that we made was that like, especially in places like the U.S., to get, you know, industrial uh, GMO, GMO corn-fed beef as opposed to, you know, to get a couple fillet, to get a couple fillets as opposed to, you know, buying a handful of vegetables. It's in the U.S., you know, one of the most developed nations in the world. It is a lot more expensive to, to why am I sp- a lot more expensive to buy um, vegetables than it is to, 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 you know, get some unsustainably sourced beef or to buy some fast food with, you know, obviously unsustainably sourced, um, meat. And so I think that it's just, you know, it's availability, it's how widely practiced it is and it's the cost, which kind of makes it impractical to, you know, buy sustainable beef. But if that's why you have to be so aware of you know where you're living and and what's available because as someone of like i'm pretty sure like me oscar and clement like if we wanted to eat beef i'm pretty sure that we could all like go to the store and afford sustainably fed beef and in a place like malawi for me that's not a huge problem like it's it's not sustainably it's not a sustainable practice but it's not unsustainable right like they've not industrialize it they've not industrialized it to to a significant point at which it's like wholly unsustainable and so i think that you just have to be aware of like where you are what you can get with what you have because if you can't afford sustainably sourced beef then definitely one of the best options is to go vegetarian or if you're in a place where there's just no option maybe it's not that you can't afford it but maybe there's just no option whatsoever to to get you know sustainably sourced beef then i'd say the best option is to just go vegetarian or or vegan you know um it's just that you have to be aware of like where everything is coming from and and what you have access to maybe there's an argument there that like because we could make beef um more a lot more sustainable than it actually is um if there were a greater demand for sort of strictly sustainable beef, then that the greater demand would obviously by just sort of economic forces drive down the price of it and provide incentives for those meat companies to make, reduce that or even eradicate the green premium and make beef more sustainable yeah. just by consumer demand. Yeah, I mean, I think the problem here is that it's, intrinsically far more expensive to raise anything any animal sustainably uh, because you need more land and you can't use the huge supply and stuff and all the, i think the point that she's making is that the the 
sustainable beef in the US is from these sort of small, I'm not going to use the word family owned, I'll explain that in a second, but these small, small scale ranches that are doing stuff on a small scale. And it's not run by the big meat companies, because I think there's a huge problem across the climate change scene of greenwashing, and perhaps more specifically, uh, in the meat industry as well of companies saying stuff is sustainable or saying animals are happy, when actually, that's really not the case at all. And I, I do worry that if there were more and more demand for sustainably raised beef, it's not necessarily the, the sort of thing that can be easily scaled up because these ranches aren't like huge companies with uh, lots of financial backing. And actually, she does say in the book that most of the sort of sustainable ranches are on very, very tight margins to be able to sell their beef. So I think that's an interesting point to be raised. And I think more importantly, I think I just wanted to raise a point about family owned and local. And these terms are often thrown around to mean, oh, it's sustainable. But the point about a local farm is, is people like, oh, the local farm, it means it's so sustainable. Uh, and the first point to make there is that uh, most of the carbon emissions of any food come from the production and not from the transportation. Transportation makes up less than 5%. So it's really not important. You shouldn't really be worrying so much about if your food is uh, from you know your back door or from somewhere else in the country you should be more worrying about how it's raised the other thing that people say is oh it's family owned and a large majority of animal farms please stop shouting a large majority of animal farms in the u.s are family owned but actually 99.9 percent of poultry farms in the u.s are factory farms so that means that quite a lot of family-owned farms are also factory farms so we shouldn't be using these terms like family-owned or local to denote the sustainability or the welfare uh, uh, quotient if you want to use that word of a farming practice yeah i think i'd like to elaborate i think i agree with clement like definitely but i understand what Oscar is saying and you know because I've been thinking about this a lot as well um just kind of increasing you know supply and driving down prices of sustainably sourced beef and of course I have to agree that it's not anything easy because it, it takes a lot more resources um to raise sustainably sourced beef however yeah. I would like to put forward the point that I think um, it's all in kind of how we're using our land resources because I think that if we, I think that if more farmers committed to, you know, a sustainable, a sustainably, to sustainably sourcing their cattle and to sustainably raising their cattle that I, I think that like using the land which is currently available to you know farmers on the whole like i think whatever it's something like 60 percent of the u.s is is farmland or something like that or cattle ranching land like there's some ridiculous statistic like that i, I don't no, i don't have it memorized off by heart but with such a large percentage of the land dedicated to raising cattle um i think that if farmers recognized you know, that there are ways to develop sustainably and try to um, kind of exemplify that, that I think that using the land available to them that's already being used in countries like the U.S., I think that we could definitely shift towards a more sustainable, a more sustainable um, way of raising cattle. And then uh, on the whole, and then, you know, of course, as the supply increases, then the demand um, well, then the, there's room for like that, like that demand can be met really. And then 
um, prices will be driven down and, and such. Yeah. I do wonder, though, if it's correct to apply standard economic you know, manufacturing supply and demand to sustainable meat. I, I do worry that if there becomes too much demand for sustainable you know, beef specifically, that, that you sort of see a dilution of the actual quality because there's nothing inherently scalable about sustainable beef operations in, that the, in the way that there is with unsustainable factory farming operations. Because the factory farming operations, you're running on quite large profit margins it's run by big corporations who are sort of contracting out the actual farming to uh, farmers and that's not a good situation for the farmers and this means that you have the 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 big corporations have a lot of capital that they can reinvest into contracting out or franchising out more and more unsustainable farming they can also centralize the production of feed which is uh, mostly soy and grain and that's what's fed to the cattle and, and other factory farmed animals on the whole. And so they can consolidate that. There is room for scalability within the feed, and that's then distributed to the individual farms. Whereas the thing about grass-fed cattle is it's grass-fed cattle, and each, in order to raise cattle entirely on grass, you have to have the cattle on grass. And so it's not extremely scalable, especially you're on very tight profit margins. You just you need just as many people to raise more cows and you need just as much land to raise more cows in the way that there is a bit more flexibility and a bit more uh you know a mag what's it called? Magnitudes of scale? Economies of scale with perhaps factory farming. And I do wonder if there's there's a sort of risk in driving up the demand so much that we might convert more uh, unconverted land to grassland for cattle, which could have problems if you're deforesting, um, all in, a, in an attempt for people who are trying to be sustainable, it may not actually be sustainable as you, as you want. One thing uh, before I get cut off again is that at the end of the book, the author is talking about how she lives a sort of very wholesome diet and she eats you know, stuff from local farms. And one thing she says is we, we eat grass-fed beef and pasture-raised turkey. And she does talk about how they raise turkey on the farm. But I think she's sort of a dodging a bullet here when she says pasture-raised turkey because I don't think that turkey can be raised entirely on grass. They're not ruminant. So while the turkey is raised on a pasture, that turkey is still being fed grains and uh, you know, probably is relatively sustainable grains. But I think it's important to point that out that you can't raise turkey with them just eating grass you have to give them feed and this is the same thing with you know free range eggs um is that it's important to note that uh, even free range eggs and free range hens uh, are still fed soy uh, or other sort of grains like that uh, to make up their feed and this is this ties into a bigger point as well about the the progression of agriculture from when it used to be you know we have these animals that you know you might each family might have one or two and you live together with them and you feed them scraps and it's all, all sort of very uh, contained in the whole, whereas now they've sort of just been completely devolved in into a situation where uh, they we divert huge amounts of land. We store the animals on a small amount of land, which is bad for the animals, but then we use a huge amount of uh, arable land to then feed the animals as well. So it's a uh, unsustainable in both directions as well. <sighs> and I think there's also that something we talked about in the Kiss the Ground episode as well is that and. The, that seemed really interesting is the idea of sort of regenerative cattle farming and holistic management, which has been mainly propagated by Alan Savory. And actually, if you look at the citations in the back of the book, uh, she does quote Alan Savory quite a lot. However, what I've seen, and I do need to fact check this, is that um, Alan Savory's claims about the the uses of holistic management are perhaps a bit overblown and that uh, scientific, that hasn't been, we haven't been able to uh, back up his claims about holistic management with scientific evidence um and in fact i and this does make sense to me is that a point she makes is that actually you know when you grass grass-fed beef is carbon negative because although the beef contribute to global warming uh the ecosystem benefits that they have 
suck carbon out of the atmosphere. And I think it makes sense that uh, because cattle are ruminant animals and ruminants have long made up part of ecosystems that they would have ecosystem benefits, it does make sense that you can't keep sequestering more and more carbon into the soil every single year, year upon year. And that at some point, the soil reaches a sort of a saturation of carbon where it can't accept any more. And at that point, the cattle is just bad. But also other things, other sources are saying that, you know, t- between 20, it's only between 20 and 60% of the uh, cows emissions that are captured by uh, their ecosystem benefits um, and also you know we could use this sort of another point she says somewhere uh, and I'm not going to try and find this but she says uh, I was seeing it before but she was like um, you know uh, in terms of rainfall and this is a huge problem that we discussed in the agriculture section that uh, when rain lands on uh but you know badly managed cropland that it runs off into the water and that's really bad and she worked a lot with water pollution in her former a previous job as an environmental lawyer um but then she says oh there's nothing better than fresh rain falling on well-kept grasslands and while it's true that uh, grasslands will accept rain much better and that'll be much better for the ecosystem rather than running off with pollutants I think there's something to be said about what if you let the land go back to nature be rewilded uh, and that could be probably much better for the carbon, much better for the ecosystems. Uh, and then we could use all the well, land that's freed up awesome. from not having to produce crops for animal agriculture awesome. and use that to grow food for humans instead. I think that that's sort of something which is, you know, being implemented in a lot of sustainable um, cattle ranches. I think that um, rewilding is kind of being used. So, I mean, moving away from the book just for a, a brief moment to think about... Um, uh, Kiss the Ground, the, the documentary. We did an episode on that. Go back and listen to it if you want. Um, but Kiss the Ground, in Kiss the Ground, um, I think that something which I found quite interesting was that, you know, and of course this took a huge amount of, of land. So, you know, this goes back to the, you know, maybe this wouldn't work, you know, on a global scale, but, you know, on, in a, you know, small, um, in a, you know, fair sized farm where you do have some land. Um, there were these people who kind of rewilded the land and then they would move cattle from um, like one segment of the pasture from day to day. And the cattle would kind of, um, because they, they're grazers, they kind of like, they kind of mow the grass for them. And so then they just let the grass grow back over, you know, the, another, you know, it takes like probably half, half a year and they just leave the grass and then the cattle, they bring the cattle back to that area again. And then the cattle just take that down again. And I think that that is something which some people are trying to do. But I think that is something which definitely does have to be more widely practiced, especially in sustainably sourced beef. Because I think that a lot of people, you know, don't really allow their pastures to rewild. I think that people are, you know, more focused on just having some sort of grass which the cattle can graze on rather than that being kind of this, you know, wild, natural um, grass that just kind of grew in the process of rewilding the area, if that makes sense. Yeah, but I think there's something to be said that since we don't need cattle to have a complex, a good nutrition system, that 
instead the land that's used for cattle and especially for feedlot cattle as well that's not necessarily suitable for arable agriculture while it's possible that you could have certain environmental gains by using it um uh with holistic management or whatever to have uh you know it's good for the environment and you know the cattle rotation and all of this stuff it's also worth thinking like if you just all that land and that's a lot of land that's used to uh you know, for beef in the US, if that was rewilded, just given back to nature, that could have a far better environmental impact. And then the land that is... Will get out! Get out! Oscar, Oscar, it's fine. And then the land that was used to grow soy to feed the feedlot cattle, uh, and then that land can be used to grow food for us. Uh, And there is absolutely enough arable land in the US to support a growing population. But if we keep feeding so much of our... uh, crops to animals that's so inefficient and that means that we are seeing problems with food security and i think a point that she does raise is that you know you know vegans are saying oh you know we'll have so much more food and there are starving children in africa i and and she points out that you know practically we can't necessarily send all our food to africa but i think it's important to sort of understand on a whole that as we have a growing population in the u.s alone it's uh, ramping down meat production and growing more crops for ourselves could be a useful step yeah, I think right maybe we can say what we like about how we there's, there are ways that we can mitigate the, the, the effects of meat on the climate. There are ways that we can try and drive down the cost so that people buy it more. But at the end of the day, it's just, firstly, it's intrinsically easier and more environmentally friendly to grow crops. Um, and secondly, that it's just, there are so many barriers that we would have to overcome to try and make beef even remotely sustainable. And I think that's a really large gamble to take um, compared to just switching to, to vegetarianism. Yeah, it's just really not in the, in the uh, what, what's it called? It's not in the interest of the meat companies to make it sustainable because sustainable is the opposite of profitable. Well, and I, you know, this kind of brings me to my, one of my, f- favorite points to to make in this in this uh podcast because to me this is something that I'm quite passionate about and I know that Oscar is quite you know he he has a slightly different take on this and we agree in certain areas and disagree in other areas but in my opinion um the best diet is definitely flexitarianism which is not a recognized diet but I think it's it's kind of that the whole idea that comes with flexitarianism is it's just an omnivorous diet that's being sustainably managed. So I think often, often I'm, I'm a flexitarian. I, I, can, I would consider myself a flexitarian. Um, and of course, you know, it's not a real diet, but it's something which I put a lot of thought into and I, you know, take a lot of care in managing because, you know, as, as we've mentioned before, although cattle can be unsustainable in a lot of instances and it's we have this huge problem with the overpopulation of cattle and the you know and like the the growth of the meat industry um and it's just kind of like this we're not managing it well um on the flip side you know like we mentioned before and like we've mentioned in previous episodes in the agriculture section of season 1 um there's a lot of unsustainable practices to source our vegetables and I think that it's very naive to overlook that and so I think it's um really important to take into account all sides so 
to think about, you know, where is your cattle coming from? Where are your vegetables coming from? And then where is the balance? So what I do is I have limited myself to three meat meals a week. So I only have three meals a week, which include meat, whether that is chicken, beef, pork, whatever. I eat fish. Um, I make sure that it's sustainably sourced and I limit my fish consumption because also um, I know it's slightly separate from what we're talking about today, but um, fish can be widely and sustainably sourced as well, which is a whole nother problem. And then I, um, we have a garden at home, which, and we have our own compost, which we use to fertilize the garden instead of artificial, you know, urea-based fertilizers or whatever, ammonia-based fertilizers, sorry, not urea. And, um, and we grow our own vegetables. So we get a lot of vegetables from, and fruits from our garden. But on top of that, if we have to buy fruits and vegetables, um, we try and buy locally sourced vegetables that have not been shipped from South Africa or from the US. And we also, um, when we're purchasing our vegetables, we try and be, you know, careful, especially when I'm there, we try and be careful about whether or not it's GMO or it's um, an organic, um, an organically sourced, um, you know, produce. So that's something which I think, you know, everyone should take into account is just, you, you can't look at just cutting beef, really. I think that is very naive to say, um, I'm going to cut beef from my diet because beef is bad. Because if you say I'm going to cut beef from my diet because beef is bad, and then you become a vegetarian, but you're getting all this unsustainably sourced vegetables, you're honestly just doing bad by the environment in another way that you refuse to recognize so that you can feel good about yourself. And I think that that's a big problem with a lot of, you know, inexperienced vegetarians and, and vegans is that they think they're doing something great by the environment by just being a vegetarian. Well, you could really be doing a lot of harm. So I think you have to, if you, if you want to be a vegetarian or a vegan, and I'll let Oscar talk about this after, but you have to put a lot of, there's a lot of thought which has to go into that process because you have to think about where you're getting everything from to make sure that you're not getting unsustainably sourced vegetables and fruits and, and such and um, unsustainably support, uh, sourced um, meat alternatives and, and such. So, um, but as a flexitarian, I think that, you know, again, this is probably the best diet because it's the easiest, it's definitely the easiest environmental um, environmentally friendly diet to uphold because you can, all you have to do is think about where you're getting everything from and then limit your consumption in each area by a certain amount so that you're not, you know, over supporting like the meat industry, for example, or unsustainably sourced vegetables. And then voila, it's just, uh, you have yourself a fairly environmentally friendly diet. And I think that that's something which everyone can do um, because I think a lot of people probably aren't ready to, you know, like Oscar deep dive into veganism or vegetarianism, or maybe they're not ready to um, purchase or can't purchase all the sustainably sourced vegetables and, and meat substitutes, which I've been talking about. And so in that case, I think flexitarianism is a great option, which just means 
think about everything that you purchase and you're pretty much good to go. Oscar, would you like to talk yeah. about um, um, veganism? Yeah, there's, there's a lot... There's a lot to talk about there about about what you've what you've said about flexitarian diet, and I think one of the one of the first things to know is that you said you know it's something everyone can do, and I just blatantly think that's false because any sort of sustainably and you can rebut me at the end. I'd like to have my my turn, but I think any sort of sustainably produced, whether it be a crop or an animal product, is going to be more expensive, and I think for a lot of people who are uh, impoverished or just don't have that much money that they can spend on food easily, it's I don't know, and I don't think that they can afford to buy organic vegetables and organic fruits and organic grains and organic and also which is and why also try and get I think Oscar, I'd like to just build on that briefly, which is why I think as a flexitarian, like I think the thing is as well, like I think a lot of people cannot afford, you know, sustainably sourced beef, grass-fed beef, or organic food or non-GMO vegetables or whatever, and I understand that and I recognize that but I think that if you consciously try and cut your consumption from each area so if you're not having a beef burger every night so you're not over supporting you know the unsustainable meat industry or you're not having you know fruit which has been shipped halfway across the world as your breakfast every day and then supporting um, consumerism, I then I think I think everyone can kind of cut from different areas so that even if you're not able to get sustainably sourced food, so that you're not over supporting any sector really. And I think that that is something which people should try to do because I know some people can't just you know based on where they are. You know maybe it's not something to do with money, but maybe it's just where they are. They can't get sustainably sourced produce. And that's something which is, I think, quite common, you know, unfortunately. And um, even when it is, like we mentioned, it's not always, you know, feasible to buy it because it's it's expensive. So I think I think it's just important to 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 try and and limit your consumption from each sector, you know, and then I think that that you know, could do a lot of good potentially, even if you're not sustainably sourcing everything that you purchase. I think like the key to that is just being mindful of what you're eating. Maybe not even like being such as radical as going completely vegetarian or going completely vegan. It's just paying attention and doing maybe a bit of research into where you're getting your food um, and whether that's environmentally sustainable. Like if you're physically unable to meet those environmental standards like by completely organic food or by um non-gmo food then you know that's completely fine but i think the important thing is that you're just aware that those are considerations you should take and that if you can there are lots of ways that you can um, limit your impact on the environment with the food you eat um by just you know noticing where it's coming from yeah, and I think that's something that the author of the book advocates a lot. But something I sort of something I said when I first went vegetarian was the idea of a blanket rule. And so while it's certainly possible that you know some meat could be sustainably produced or that you could be sustainable on a flexitarian diet, I felt like especially when you're eating out or if you're buying products which have meat in them from a supermarket rather than cooking for yourself, that there's a real risk that you inadvertently uh, buy a lot of unsustainable meat. And so one of the things that 
really pushed me towards it was the idea that, you know, is rather than while it's certainly possible that you could ha- eat a small amount of meat and be very careful about where all your vegetables come from and have a more sustainable diet than someone who's a vegan. I think if you're if you're a vegan or a vegetarian, then you ha- you don't really have to think so much about it. And that decision fatigue is a real problem actually about about making so many different decisions and trying so hard for something that you have to do three times a day. And so if you just have this blanket rule and like, okay, well, you know, even if perhaps sometimes some of my food isn't the most sustainably sourced, I know that I've avoiding the most common culprits for unsustainable food and i think it's also important to think about like the effects of the food that you're eating even if you're a flexitarian because something like sustainable beef she 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 basically she disputes that the un food and agriculture organization on their statistic about the impact of cattle ranching in terms of uh, carbon dioxide equivalent emissions and she provides a new figure and I was quite surprised because this new figure she provides, and I don't know if I'll be able to find it, is actually still quite high, um, especially con- compared to crop production. And I think because of this intrinsic efficiency, inefficiency, it's and because also you know it takes up so much land as well to do it in an in a more you know carbon efficient way. How how sustainable is it really to have any meat at all? Something else to point out is stuff like fish. You know the fishing industry produces more carbon emissions than the aviation industry as a whole. Uh, and so is there really such a thing as sustainable fish? Like if you've seen the documentary Seaspiracy, for example, then you might be really asking, is it really at all sustainable to have fish given the completely dire state our oceans are in? Because anything that's bottom trawled is just, you know, obviously not at all good for the I'd environment I'd like to point out, though, way. that Seaspiracy is very biased and provides a very one-sided view on it and although i agree with you know most of the points that they make they don't really provide any solutions to it or any well they do optimism, they say you stop eating fish really yeah but that's not the solution is it the solution but it is, is not to stop it? eating fish because fish is a great source of protein and healthy uh, protein well, at no. that and um, i'll disagree with that oh you can disagree if you want but i think that fish is a great um is of great nutritional value and that Fish can be sustainably sourced. But anyway, I don't want to get onto that in this episode because we're talking about the meat industry, uh, not necessarily the fishing industry, but yeah. Well, I, I, this is a really big pet peeve of mine, is that people differentiate between fish and other meat. Fish, in terms from an ethical point of view, I don't get people who say, oh, I don't think it's okay to eat animals, but I think it's okay to eat fish. I fish agree Fish are that. sentient beings. They can feel pain in the same way as animals. I agree. But also agree. the fishing industry is also environmentally devastating on the similar scale to the land animal agriculture industry. So yeah, I don't understand the sort of differentiation. Something that Seaspiracy points out is that, you know, there's no such thing as sustainable fish because our oceans are so overexploited. And I think there is a small amount of nuance to be said there that it's per fishery and per fish stock. So most fish stocks are either fully exploited or overexploited, but there are certain wild fish stocks that fish that fish stocks that could still be sustainably fished in a way that so rather than treating the world as a whole because if you look at the world as a whole there's no way to fish sustainable but if you look at sort of individual areas it's possible that certain areas could be fished sustainably but on the whole the world has to reduce its fish consumption because we can't consume the amount of fish that we do in the way that we do because obviously fish farming is out of the question that's just ridiculously for the environment but i think also something that uh Spears points out is about is fish good food and it's not so while it is a source of protein you can get protein from plants like that's people people like but fish oils fish oils have yeah fish oils have significant benefits in the prevention of heart disease like 
have you taken that into account? Because I think that's something which yeah, is yeah, hugely beneficial to the second. general public. Okay, sure, go ahead. I mean, because also uh, uh, something that uh, Nicola Hahn Nyman brings up in her book about a huge section about how beef is good food is about the liver and that the liver is really nutritious. But people are all about you know like oh I'm vegetarian for health, but I eat fish because fish is good food. But I think it's you know beef. I don't see anyone eating beef liver for health reasons, even though that's packed with nutrients. And yeah. also, like, if you think about wild fish, what are they actually swimming in? What have we done to our oceans? Well, for one thing, there's a huge amount of microplastics. It's well documented that there you can find bits of microplastics yeah. in fish, Agreed. and that's not good for you. Yeah. Also, because of the huge amount of runoff from uh, from plant agriculture as well as animal agriculture, uh, that means that our waters are very much polluted with industrial pollutants because also, you know, chemical runoff from chemical plants, industrial pollutants and heavy metals. So actually studies have shown, and I understand that saying studies have shown sounds really dodgy, but I might, if I can be bothered, find some sources to put in the show notes. But actually fish can be filled with industrial pollutants, heavy metals and yes. microplastics yes. while all being not while all being a source of protein that can be well emulated with other plants. Now on your point about fish oil, you know, a lot of people say, oh, well, you know, uh, fish has omega-3 fatty acids. Uh, <laughs> but, um, you know, those omega-3 fatty acids are not necessarily the healthiest form of omega-3 fatty acids. And you can absolutely get omega-3 fatty acids from plant sources. One example is actually, there's my doorbell. And uh, the thing you always have to ask because of the middleman argument against animal agriculture is, you know, where have the animals got their sources of protein from? And in the case of the fish, a lot of the omega-3 fatty acids actually come from a certain type of algae that produces the acid, these omega-3s. So you can actually get your omega-3 from a plant source by cutting out the middleman of the fish. Um, and algae is something that's much easier to grow than fish per se. And vitamin D is also something that you can get from plant source as, as well. I take a vitamin D supplement and you don't necessarily need to have fish oil, which has these other implications of pollutants and microplastics. And instead you can uh, you can take an algae tablet or you can just understand that, you know, there are omega-3 acid, fatty acids and stuff other than fish. So since we did the recording, I've done a bit more research about omega-3 fatty acids. And so it turns out that there's three types of omega-3 fatty acids, ALA, DHA and EPA. All three are found in oily fish. However, only ALA is found in omega-3 rich uh, plants such as flax seeds. However, your body converts ALA in flax seeds to DHA and EPA with a conversion rate between 3 and 5%, which means it's easier to get enough of all your omega-3 fatty acids by eating a wide range of plant foods, especially including flax seeds, which you can just sprinkle on top of your cereal, for example. Um, and considering that there's potentially industrial pollutions, PCBs, uh, other chemicals that we put in the ocean, microplastics in fish, and that the protein that you get from fish, you can easily get from other sources. I think it's fair to think that fish is no longer a health food. Also, uh, there's a recent sort of meta review study that's come out showing that there's actually no significant link between uh, fish and preventing heart disease. So it's it's not actually useful for that. And instead, we just eat a wide range of foods, whether that includes meat or not. But I think this idea that fish is special is wrong. And we have the science to show that actually it's not really health food and fish oil isn't really something that you should be taking to stay healthy. Um, we can get vitamin D, vitamin D, vitamin D from supplements or from just spending time outside. That's always a good thing. Uh, and yeah. Well, also, I'd like to point out, though, that Oscar, you, you, I, I, OK, I, I first of all, I want to agree I on the on the whole I agree with what you've just said. I do agree that there's a lot of downsides to fish and that fish is in general one of the most unsustainable practices 
that you can invest in when purchasing food, despite the fact that I think that there is such a thing as sustainable fish. Um, but I just want to talk to you about, I mean, so just moving on from the, from the discussion of, of fish and, um, I mean, what do you think about like supplementary, you know, like when, when people try and, you know, what is fortify foods with nutrients that wouldn't naturally be in them. I think that in often cases, it's a lot harder for the body to absorb those nutrients um, from the source because it's not a natural source. And I think also then, you know, where are they getting those nutrients to fortify or whatever the, the foods with? Like, where is that coming from? How are they doing that? Is it sustainable? Is it as healthy? Is it as easy for the body to absorb? Like, to me... Okay, I, I'm, for the most part, a vegetarian. Like, my flexitarian diet is, I'd say, like, I'm on the rare occasion eat meat. I barely eat meat, even though I allow myself three times a week to have meat in some form. I don't generally eat meat. And so, for the most part, I'm vegetarian. And I do invest in, like, fortified foods and, and like, meat alternatives. But really, like, is it that... Is it as good as, say, beef or fish? Like, is it as good as the natural source could be, has the potential to be? Like, I, I don't, it doesn't seem like it from what I know. Now, that's a really interesting question as well, because I think on the one hand, what do you really mean when you say a natural source? Because the cow hasn't made, put iron in its flesh for us to eat. Um, and we've sort of adapted to be able to absorb it. And I think for iron... Uh, there's the distinction between heme and non-heme iron. So heme iron is comes from animals. It's because of the hemoglobin that it's much easier to absorb the iron from from flesh, basically. Uh, so eating beef is a better way to absorb iron. Non-heme iron is found in large quantities in stuff such as spinach and kale, but across across lots of plants as well, you can get iron in a non-heme form, which means it is harder to absorb. However, um, having vitamin C, which you can be found in citrus fruits, for example, can uh, aid the absorption as well. And I think impossible... Uh, the company makes impossible burgers or is it beyond me no, i think it's impossible um are uh, also working on basically making their own uh, version of heme from soy so that you were able to absorb iron better yeah but then um, and it I gives it that fleshy taste in that case then you have to think about like okay so they're they're you know fortifying it with you know heme they're trying to they're trying to mimic heme iron from soy but is that soy sustainably sourced, you know, or is it coming from deforested parts of the Amazon where we're unsustainably growing um, soy and then are we shipping it halfway across the world to somewhere where we're going to, you know, mill it down so that we can produce that artificial heme um, iron so that we can insert it into a food which does not provide the nutrients that you need as easily as the, you know, a more direct source such as cattle and like I that's something which I think about a lot because I despite like my support for vegetarian and vegan alternatives because I do you know eat a fair amount I think like I think in often cases I think that they're smart enough to they're really marketing it to dumb vegetarians in a way because they're um I think, uh, no, I don't take this 
badly, Oscar. I mean, because I, I wouldn't, you know, I'm saying this and I eat, you know, some of, you know, these alternatives, but I think that the thing is, is that they source a lot of the stuff which they put in their alternatives unsustainably. And it's like unsustainable soy and corn and stuff. And that's really detrimental to the environment, but they're, you know, in their advertisements, they're saying, well, this is so much better because it's, it's not beef. It tastes like beef. You get the nutrients you need, but it's not beef. And so it's really environmentally friendly. And I think that they're taking this really, I think they're exploiting the kind of um, monotone view that a lot of the public has on like um, beef and, and fish and like this, this negative mindset, which we've kind of gotten into, like we've created this stigma surrounding um, beef. And I think that they exploit that and try and make their produce, like products seem more sustainable, despite the fact that they're sourcing a lot of their stuff unsustainably. And on top of that, you know, you might not be getting the same amount of nutrients that you need, or maybe they're harder to get. So like they're harder to absorb. So you need to eat more of the food or more supplements, which then costs more so that you can get the same amount of nutrients. Like I think that there's on the nutritional side, I think that it's a lot harder to like, you know, to be nutritionally healthy as a vegetarian or vegan. And I'm not saying that it's impossible, but then that also comes into the environmental, you know, sector, like I've just sort of mentioned, and I don't know what you think about that. Oh gosh, there's a lot to break down here. So I think the first thing I want to go back to the point about supplements. Um, And so a lot of food that non-vegans eat is supplemented with iron. So specifically breakfast cereals, uh, at least in the UK here, are generally uh, fortified with iron um, so that people can get a good amount of their iron intake, uh, whether or not they follow a vegan or vegetarian diet. Then there's also salt. So it's not uh, fortified in the UK, but in most countries around the world, salt is actually iodized, which means it has a small amount of iodine added to it uh, because often people on Western, modernized, unhealthy diets don't get enough iodine. Um, and so I, I don't think it's necessarily thing specific scale. to... Oh, please let me finish scale, my point. When, um, please let me finish yeah, my point. Yeah, sorry. Yep. Uh, and so I think supplements are something that some vegans take to be, you know, on the safe side. And it's definitely true that, you know, vegan food isn't always as nutritionally dense, but that's because it hasn't gone through a huge amount of processing that beef has. And I think... You know, you, you say that, you know, it's very much processed, these sort of, let's, let's use Impossible Burger as an example, you know, it's, it's very processed and it's definitely is processed, but it's not like, you know, beef is free. Like there's a lot that goes into making beef and that's in terms of the ranching and the cows you live, you know, for like two years before they're slaughtered. So, and the, you know, the cows go through a lot to make this and it's, while it is natural, like in quotation marks, but it's not necessarily, you know, freely available you know cows don't grow on trees so there's a lot to be said there but on on your point about the um, i can't even remember what your point was uh about the the cows and oh yeah you were talking about the soy being really unsustainable and i think i don't think that's necessarily true i, I don't know if you've provided me with a source showing that impossible sources their soy from gmo farms well, in brazil I haven't, but i know that a lot of okay yeah it's just that a lot of large scale i think okay i'm this is based off assumption because I don't have a source at the moment. I don't, I don't buy my food from Impossible, so I haven't done any research. I, I don't, I've never purchased from Impossible beef or whatever it's called. Like I don't, I've never sourced my, my alternatives from there, but I know that a lot of these large-scale 
processed production facilities, I know for a fact that they exploit this stigma against beef, which is what I was saying, which is what you forgot. I, they, they exploit this stigma against beef so that they seem like a more sustainable, um, like a more sustainable alternative, despite the fact that in many cases, not always, Oscar, but in many cases, or at least in part, maybe it's not the soy, but maybe some other ingredient which they're sourcing has been unsustainably grown, unsustainably harvest, and then shipped across the world. Okay. And so yeah, that yeah, can be point. a big problem. Yeah. That was my point. Okay, point. So a few things to debunk, so please don't cut into me. Yeah. Uh, you can rebut later. But the first thing, you, you reference a lot in your arguments, and you shipped halfway across the world, but I referenced earlier that, you know, the production is the vast majority of the carbon emissions and the transportation account for a very small part of that. Yeah, um, so okay. when we think about locally sourced, we should be thinking about more about what's seasonal and what, what makes sense to grow in harmony with the environment rather than what's necessarily being shipped halfway across the world. Yeah. So the, the thing that you say a lot, you say a lot about, you know, the soy that's used to make these meal alternatives, and there's a few things to debunk with that. And the first thing is it's often not soy. There's a lot of products. So, for example, Beyond Meat is one of the – please stop singing. Beyond Meat is one of the most popular alternatives. And that we do have that in the UK. We don't have Impossible over here. But the thing with Beyond Meat is it's actually made with pea protein. And peas are actually known – you know, they're very good for the environment because they're legumes and they insert nitrogen back into the soil. So I think uh, a lot of meat replacements are made with pea rather than soy. But there's also the thing is that, you know – Almost all soy is used to feed animals. Very small amount of soy is used for, um, you know, uh, making meat alternatives. So while grass-raised beef uh, doesn't use soy, most, if uh, like a huge majority of the beef grown for beef in the United States is raised at least for part of its life in a feedlot fed soy. And so this means because of the middleman that when we have soy products, instead of uh, eating cows that are raised on soy, that it's obviously better to just have the soy directly, no matter of how the soy is sourced. Then also uh, compared to grass-raised beef, you know, grass-raised beef uses a lot of land. So if we wanted to entirely eat grass-raised beef, we wouldn't be able to have as much grass-raised beef per person because you just can't make as much grass-raised beef as you yeah. can soy-raised beef. Mm -hmm. So that means that actually we would still want to be having some of these impossible burgers that are used with a small amount of soy uh, yeah. so that we can have real beef sometimes uh, as environmentally appropriate and as our production can allow and then mostly be having these soy-based alternatives. Would anyway. you allow me to and, like come in here for a second? Would you mind? Okay, because okay, it just that kind of just it just brought me back to this whole idea of like uh, you know the easy diet of flexitarianism because you know like we've mentioned it's not easy to be a vegetarian or a vegan and it's not always the most sustainable but um which that that brings me back like you just you've just mentioned yourself um you know eating because of course you know you can't you know, if if everyone switched to to grass fed beef, and grass fed beef grew as as a as an industry as a, um, then you wouldn't be able to get as much cattle per land, um, and so therefore people would have to cut their their intake of cattle. However, there's currently an overpopulation of cattle, and um, there's like such a surplus that I think a lot of that ends up going to waste and is not used and contributes to obesity in countries like the U.S. where we have that surplus. Um, and then, so I think that you've just kind of highlighted how it, and not, I'm not saying that you've, I'm not trying to, to turn what you've said into something that's like anti-vegan at all. But what I'm saying is 
what you said kind of highlights how being a flexitarian could be a beneficial diet because you've just mentioned that, um, you know, eating a portion of sustainably sourced cattle and then some, you know, impossible meat or whatever it's called could be a fair diet. And that in that case, you're a flexitarian because what you're doing is you're conscious, like you're, you're limiting um, your consumption from either sector so that you're not, you know, over supporting either and you're being conscious of what you're intaking. So I just wanted to make that point again. Yeah. Oh no, so. I know I know I understand this is that from an environmental perspective I understand that there's nuance within the argument and that it's possible for people who are super attached to their meat and not really attached to their animals to have a flexitarian diet in a way that's environmentally sustainable and I I don't think I uh, was ever really denying that it's possible to be flexitarian and to be sustainable like I think your diet probably is he show. My my two arguments are thus and the first is that it, the easiest way to vastly reduce your carbon emissions from your food is just to go plant-based. Um and the second is that I, I like I think flexitarian like like I said from an environmental perspective is understandable. But f- my reason for being vegan is ethical rather than environmental. And I think yeah. at first you know I was drawn in by the environmental arguments, but I I realized that I didn't really agree with the way that we use animals and exploit animals for our for our food and other parts of our life as well. And I think my last point about that about in response to your arguments against soy is that a lot of these meat replacement products are based in uh are targeted at environmentalists and flexitarians just as much as they are at uh, hardcore vegans and vegetarians so i think uh a lot of them will have uh implicitly they want to be good for the environment and not use gmo soy for example i drink oat milk um and my oat milk is not produced abroad it's well it's, it's produced within europe um and, you know, currently I'm having organic oat milk as well. However, the problem with organic oat milk is it's not fortified with B12 or calcium, which means we have to have non-organic oat milk in order to get the right nutrients because ultimately oats don't have as many nutrients as milk naturally um, because there's no middleman to sort of... And then know, it has to be fortified. Bring in a vast amount yeah. of nutrients. Yeah. 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 But I don't have any problem with that. It just means the Soil Association won't certify it as organic. Um, but for yogurt, I substitute my dairy yogurt, I substitute it with soy-based yogurt. And this is from a brand called Alpro. There were other brands available. But what's specifically good about the Alpro soy yogurt is that it says on the packet, because it's targeted potentially at people who are environmentally conscious, it says GMO-free uh, and rainforest-free soya. So I, I, I know for a fact that one of my biggest sources of uh, soy is um, Alpro soy yogurt that I have with my breakfast every morning. And I know that that's not made with with rainforest soya or GMO soya. Yeah, I'm also a big consumer of like alternatives to milk because I just prefer soy milk and yeah, it tastes better, oat milk. It? Yeah, I guess to me, like it's just preferable. Like I prefer soy milk, oat milk. Um, I prefer uh, almond milk. Although I think almond milk, I'm very iffy about. I'm not entirely pro the almond industry and the way that people grow almonds but anyway um I definitely consume that and I it's I just think you know I kind of want to I'm I'm afraid that we're going to scare the listeners with how long this episode's been <laughs> but it's going to be a long so episode I wanna, there's I no I want to end this off kind of <laughs> soon but I want to say that you know I understand the ethical implications of like being an omnivore um, and eating meat 
And I mean, to me, this is something which, you know, I'm a significant animal lover. I'm an aspiring biologist, conservationist. I love animals for numerous reasons, but I just, I've never had a problem with like eating meat. And I don't know why, but I know a lot of people who do have, you know, this problem with eating meat. And I accept that. Like I, I, in fact, I understand it, even though I don't, you know, feel the same way. And, and I just think that, you know, if I, I just wanted to kind of give the listeners this is that, you know, if you're a vegetarian for um, either because you um, either because you're, you know, doing it for ethical reasons, because you kind of anti killing, um, <laughs> you know, cattle, slaughtering cattle for food, or if you're being a vegan for because, you know, I, I don't get veganism entirely, but maybe because you don't. Okay, so it's me again, and I just wanted to quickly interject to explain to you the reasons for veganism as opposed to vegetarianism. Uh, and basically the reason is is that if you're a vegetarian, you're opposed to the killing of animals. However, the thing is, is within the dairy, egg, and honey industry, there is a lot of killing of animals that takes place. So specifically, generally the young males are in the dairy industry taken away from their mothers. So are the young females, in fact. Um, and if they're female, they're fed on a milk replacement until they grow up to be able to give milk themselves. Um, and the males are often either killed, raised for veal or sold for beef. Um, and the male chicks in the egg industry are macerated alive, basically in a big blender. Uh, as soon as they hatch, they're just thrown into this big blender because they don't produce eggs either. And they're not the same species to grow up for meat. So uh, if you weren't sure, that's the reasons for being vegan as compared to vegetarian. Um, but yeah, back to the episode. Um, I think it's just, you know, whether it's for environmental implications or because of ethical implications. And I, you know, again, I want to point out that I think a lot of people try and justify their ethical, um, their, their decisions that, that they've personally made for ethical reasons with environmental reasons. I think that like, I know a lot of vegetarians um, who, you know, have gone vegetarian because they're not ethically okay with, you know, meat and the way it's sourced. But um, when, you know, when you talk to them about it, they're like, oh, but you know, it's, it's so environmentally friendly. And I think it's a problem, first of all, to justify being a vegetarian like that. I think if you want to be a vegetarian for one reason or for another reason, or if it's for both reasons, then you justify it for the reason that you made the decision. You don't try and justify it for a reason that you don't understand. Sorry, that's just me going on a little rant because that's a pet peeve of mine. But, um, I think that it's important that, you know, even if you're doing this for ethical reasons that, um, you know, despite the fact that I don't think you should be trying to justify your, you know, reason with your, um, with environmental, um, implications, I do believe that it's important to always take into account where your food's coming from. It's, you know, this has to be something which is constantly on your mind. And I think, you know, the majority of our listeners are, you know, people who do have some, um, some fraction of a choice in what they consume. And I think that it's important to, you know, when you're in the supermarket or notify your parents or, or whatever, but I think it's always important to take into account where is your food coming from? Um, is it sustainably sourced? Is it organic? Is it non-GMO? How much of this am I consuming? If I consume this, can I compensate it with 
um, this, am I, and then on top of that, if you're going to make this decision, um, you know, am I getting the correct nutritional benefits from my average meal? Because I know a lot of people who go vegetarian try like lentils, for example, and despite lentils being, you know, a, you know, a great source of, um, of like a lot of nutrients. In fact, like lentils are great. You have to consume a lot of lentils to get. That's not necessarily true. Well, lentils it, are full of protein. Lentils are full of protein, but you have to consume a lot more lentils than because lentils have are to tiny. Consume. Exactly, but what I'm saying is, you have to consume a lot more than you would have to consume beef, and you have to, you know, well, if, if you you're gonna. More? What my point is that if is that if if you're gonna try lentils, you have to be conscious of the fact that you can't like measure out like one kg of lentils because you got one kg of beef and one kg of beef is um you know like whatever a healthy amount of protein in your diet like you have to be conscious of how much nutritional benefits you're getting from everything that you're intaking and just be careful of what you're intaking and where it's coming from and then you'll be a perfect vegetarian vegan or flexitarian yeah, I mean, I don't necessarily agree with your argument about protein. I think it's very, very easy to get protein from plants. And there are very much examples of you know, vegan bodybuilders who uh, get, and they definitely get enough yes, protein. Yes, Oscar, so it's, it's easy. It's absolutely possible to get enough protein. Uh, and it's not you're really that difficult twisting, either. You're twisting what I was saying, Oscar. I'm not saying that you can't get protein as a vegetarian. No, I know you're not saying you can't get protein, but you're making it seem like it's a lot more difficult than it is. And I, ha- I, I have a primarily vegetarian diet. I, re- I rarely eat meat. Um, and, um, and I get plenty of protein, but I have to be conscious of where I'm getting my protein from and how much I have to consume. Because, mm-hmm. like, I, honestly, like, me eating a bowl of lentils or, like, a, you know, like a small portion of lentils is not going to be, you know, it's not going to uphold my protein for a week so if you're not ready to well, eat like <laughs> if you're not ready to eat like a ton of lentils every day like you have to then think about other alternatives so like i think a great one is tofu but the thing is that a lot of tofu comes from unsustainably sourced um unsustainably sourced soy which is why yeah. this they get whole, organic tofu yeah which is why this whole process takes a lot of consideration which is what i'm trying to kind of highlight here is that you know if you're ready to make a change either as a vegetarian vegan or a flexitarian um it just it takes you know a conscious effort from all sides from both the environmental side and the nutritional side to be sustainable and to be healthy and so that's what I'm the point I'm trying to make because you have to be conscious of that all the time but it's if you want to be like if you keep eating meat that's obviously very unsustainable so yeah you know whatever you're doing you have to be conscious about your diet and i don't yeah. I think it being a bit unfair on like veganism and vegetarianism because i think you know you're saying oh you'll have to eat a lot of lentils is just completely untrue there is a huge it's not, huge range of Oscar, plant-based I'm not sources seeing, there's lentils there's chickpeas oh, there's so much Oscar, different things you don't understand what i'm saying <laughs> okay no i was afraid let's move on let's move on from this no point. no let me let's move let, on let me point. i want to reiterate my point again because what i'm saying is not that there's limited sources of protein in vegetables. There's significantly more ways that you can get protein from, a, from vegetables than you can from meats because there's limited amounts of meats and there's limited types of meats. However, what I'm saying is that sometimes that protein comes in s- smaller quantities or it's harder to access. 
And so what I'm saying is when it, coming into a vegetarian diet or a flexitarian diet and trying to be, you know, more sustainable and trying to get protein from, um, you know, vegetarian sources, what, like, what you, you have to be conscious of, of the fact that there's multiple sources and that you, then with, within the, like when thinking about purchasing that, that source of protein or cooking a meal with that, you have to be conscious of how much is a healthy portion of that. So that's the point I'm trying to make. I'm sorry if yeah. I confuse you at all. I'm not because Oscar, I've been a veg, I've been like a flexitarian for about a year now, and it's been going well. And I've definitely been getting enough protein because I've been, you know, muscle building as well. Like not body, I wouldn't call it bodybuilding, but I've been going to the gym a lot. And I mean, I know for a fact that you can get um, significant protein and all of your nutrients um, through an array of sources. But it's just that you have to be conscious of what sources those are. Can you get them where you are? And how much of that source do you have to eat to be healthy? That's the point I'm trying yeah. to make. And I'm sorry if I... No, it's a fair point. But I, I don't... I feel like it's unfairly leveraged against vegetarians and vegans because a lot of people who are on, on a like a meat-based diet, to put it that way, uh, don't really care at all about their nutrition and the you know a bunch of KFC yeah, or whatever. Sure. And you know they don't care. They don't worry about their protein intake and they don't worry about, especially about you know their vitamin intake. But whenever someone says, "Oh, I'm vegan," they're like, "How oh, do you get enough protein?" But like, or you know, especially about well, yeah. you know, vitamins and stuff. So I think yeah, it's, it's totally a fair point that you have yeah. to be careful about your nutrition. But I think that's that's applied to anyone who's on any sort of diet. Uh, whether that's omnivorous or vegan, I, I don't think it's necessarily going to be made against veganism. Yeah, that's why I also mentioned flexitarianism because flexitarianism is just yeah. an omnivorous diet with a conscious effort to be sustainable. And so it's just if you like as a flexitarian, it's basically just being an omnivore with a sustainable mindset. Like, and that I don't like that. It can vary with how much meat consumption you know you intake, but. Um, that's why I put that in there. It's because as a flexitarian, like I think as every omnivore, I believe should be a flexitarian. And I believe that um, we should ha see more people trying to be vegetarian. But I do not believe that people should be going vegetarian and justifying that because, oh, because, you know, beef, cattle ruminate. Like that's not an okay point to make. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. Let's move on from that point. Moving on. Because we're running out of time. What I'd like to do is basically just summarize each of the chapters of the book. Um, so the first chapter we've gone into a lot, which is the climate change case against beef. Yep. Um, then she says all food is grass. And basically what she's saying in this chapter is that uh, beef get their food from grass, um, but we can't, therefore beef are good. Then yep. she talks about water. And, and I think she basically says, oh, beef don't actually use that much water. And, uh, you know, animal rights organizations have been meddling with the statistics to get the most favorable statistic. Um, but, you know, still, you know, uh, if you're feeding water to beef, it's more efficient than giving the water directly to crops, especially if you're already giving water to crops as well as then to the beef that eat those crops. I keep saying beef. It's cows, not beef. Yeah. Uh, bad mindset there. Then she talks about biodiversity. And this is the really interesting point about how, uh, uh, you know, cows can be beneficial for the ecosystem if managed correctly. Um then she talks about overgrazing, and I think we already mentioned quite a lot about overgrazing. Yep. And then she talks about people, and this is basically like very uns. Well, I mean, she references some sources, but it's basically talking about, well, you know, if you grow up on a farm, you know, you're a really good person. I met so many farm kids, and they're great kids. And I've spent quite a lot of time actually on a cattle farm. It's not a ranch because we don't call this in Australia, but I spent quite a you know fair few Christmas holidays on 
cattle farm, not nearly as much as my dad used to go there every weekend, but my grandparents have a cattle farm and I've been there and I know what it's like. And I totally sympathize with that idea of, you know, farm kids, but I don't think that's an argument to eat meat is that, you know, farm kids are good kids. And even if we had sustainable yeah. meat, that wouldn't mean that everyone is a farmer. And that's, that's a bit of a regressive idea. Then she talks about beef in food and health. This is two chapters here, but she talks about the health claims against beef. And this is primarily saturated fats. Uh, but then basically what she goes on to, to say is that actually, you know, nutritional uh, studies are not performed very well and they're mostly observational studies and that you know this this main piece of research that critiqued beef um, as the cause of saturated fats is wrong and i think this is a really interesting chapter because i don't necessarily agree with it uh, disagree with it um because my my point for going vegan was mainly ethical perhaps environmental not really from a health standpoint i knew it's perfectly possible to get uh, healthy food on a vegan diet but i didn't go vegan because it's healthier per se um uh, but anyway and you know the health claims against beef it's really interesting to get this perspective on something I'd never really looked into before, which is how nutritional studies are carried out. And it was interesting to see, you know, that actually perhaps sugar and to an extent refined grains are what's causing uh, most of our health problems. And that seemed to be backed up by better data compared to beef, which is not necessarily correlated very well in beef intakes go been going down while obesity is still rising. So I think that was really interesting. I haven't looked into the sources, but it seemed it seemed legitimate. What she goes on to say, though, is actually what we should be doing is instead of having a carbohydrate-based diet, we should be having almost entirely fats uh, and protein, uh, like, you know, 70% uh, fat, 20% protein, 20 Five percent protein, not like only five percent carbohydrate, and as you showed, so it's like proper like sort of clinical studies that showed low carb diets are good. Um, but I felt like this was a bit discordant. Is discordant? No, like dissident, because uh, she had previously said, you know, we've eaten beef for thousands of years, therefore it's good for us. But then she also goes on to say, you know, despite the fact that we've eaten carbohydrates for a long time, actually, you know, we should be eating mainly fats. And so that, that was interesting and uh, maybe something to take on, but not entirely from a health. Uh, not entirely from ecological perspective, maybe more nutritional. And then she talks about beef is good food. And again, I don't necessarily disagree with this. I just don't think we should be eating beef from an ethical perspective. But she, you know, she talks about how uh, it's got lots of protein and it's very much nutritionally dense because it's an animal that's been collecting nutrition. Yeah. Nu it's an animal that's been walking around collecting nutrition and accumulating it into one body mass. Of course, it's going to be more nutritionally dense than something that's just been grown out of the ground. That's by nature, but there's, of course, problems with that, and we can get good food. Finally, she goes into the critique and final analysis. A critique, what's the matter with eating meat? I don't remember what's in that. And the final analysis, why eat animals? She tries to argue for an ethical perspective of why we should an eat animals. And you know, just a couple nights ago, I was like, you know, you know, I should probably read that again and see if it makes any impact on my decisions. And I read it, and I just, I, I came out of it feeling like I just had no idea what she'd actually just said. It didn't. It didn't actually make much sense why she was arguing that's okay for us to eat animals. So like, I'm just going to go there again, but uh, why eat animals? She, so she first, she goes into the idea about, you know, beef contributes to global hunger because it uses up a lot of land. Um, and she, you know, I mentioned this before, she talks about the practicalities that we couldn't necessarily distribute food equally. Um, but I still think, you know, from her arguments, we should be, like the argument she presents here, we should be reducing meat anyway. And then the world produces some 3,800 calories per day for every man, woman, and child on earth. And no mention of non-binary people there. This amount, she notes, is almost double what's necessary for adequate nourishment. So yeah, uh, equitable food distribution is certainly a problem. But as the world grows, you know, meat is going to be taking up more and more land. And especially as places in Asia, uh, as Asia and Africa, especially as people become wealthier, they tend to eat more meat. So that's going to cause a big problem as well. Um, and then she goes on to talk about, you know, is it ethical to make 
meat and I just didn't understand anything. And it seems like the sources you go to here are quite biased as well, like the Livestock Futures Conference, like how that's going to be unbiased. And I think talking about bias as a whole is an interesting point because people, you know, you just said yourself that, you know, suspiracy is so biased. And, and I think she's talking about, you know, the vegan advocacy groups. But almost no one is born as a vegan. I certainly wasn't born as a vegan. You weren't born as a flexitarian. So... And to argue that vegans have bias is, you know, vegans might have bias, but people who become vegans come so because they see the evidence and they decide this is the right thing to do, whether that be environmentally from a health perspective or from an ethical perspective. They think this is the right thing to do and we should spread this mantra. Whereas I think people who defend meat, uh, maybe not in, in her case because she's a former vegetarian environmental lawyer, but in most cases, meat is defended by the animal agriculture industry who have a vested interest in ensuring meat consumption continues to rise. So I think that's an important thing to put out. But also... The, you know, the title of the book is The Nutritional Case for Meat. She, the only meat she defends is beef and to a very small extent pasture-raised turkey. I have seen nothing here about pork, poultry, duck, any of the other sources of meat. And I think that's because they can't be done in a sustainable way as beef can because they're all fed on turkey uh, – fed on – not turkey, fed on soy. I would like to just point out the name of the book is – despite the fact that it says Nutritional Case for Meat at the end in that little – subheading i do believe that the name of the book is defending beef and oh, yeah, i think no, no i get it I and think that makes sense oscar, but she doesn't think, give any argument for any well, other type of meat oscar i think that the main objective of the book despite um i think the despite the fact that it says in that little thing and uh, what is it an ecological and nutritional case for meat or whatever it is i believe that the main objective of this book is to kind of break the environmental stigma against beef and kind of open people's eyes up to the fact that beef cattle not beef aren't always bad for the environment beef can be okay if sustainably managed and i think that that's really like the main objective of the book so i wouldn't twist that into something that like oh she didn't bring up you know other sources of meat and so you know, I, I wouldn't say that that's really a problem. It's it, the thing is that she's, I mean, she has an, another book all about pork or something like that. Doesn't she? She has something. It's called Righteous Pork Chop. Righteous Pork it Chop. It's about pork. meat. Well, it's about meat. In, I think it's more general. It's about meat in, in general or something. And it's just that I think this book was really focused around breaking the stigma against beef, which I entirely am, you know, on par with. Like, I I agree with that kind of objective. And I don't know why it seems to upset you, but... It just upsets me. It feels like a bit of a clickbaity title. If I were to rename it, I would say Defending Beef, why some vegan advocacy groups have overblown some statistics and how eating a small amount of beef can, in some circumstances, be environmental ben and environmentally beneficial. Uh, obviously, that's not what they're going to title the book, but anyway, I think that's probably... I think the last point I'll leave you guys with from an environmental standpoint is, you know, the middleman argument, like, how possible is it to sustainably raise meat um, when we could instead be raising plants in a sustainable way? Um, anyway, and, and there's a lot of more statistics to dive into about, you know, Alan Savory and his holistic management is probably uh, not as amazing as he makes it out to be. Um, and, and perhaps some of the other facts, not so true. Thank you everyone for listening. And maybe if you want to read the book, you can. No, that's a horrible ending. Redo that. Let me, I'll end it. I'll end it. Thank you everyone for listening to this episode. I know it's been a long one, but I think this is probably one of the most important episodes that we've done. 
Defending Beef is a great book. Uh, go ahead and, and read it um, if you're up for that. And just think about, you know, shifting to a more sustainable diet, whether that's just flexitarianism and, and being conscious about what you eat or that's actually taking the deep dive into vegetarianism and veganism. Um, I think that it's something that everyone should consider and take into account. Um, thank you to Oscar for being uh, my co-host and for me being his co-host. I, should I thank myself? I don't know. But I think me and Oscar have done a pretty good job. I don't know what you guys think. Tell us in comments or on... There's, you, know, you can comment on YouTube yep. or you can comment on Instagram, DM, Twitter. Yep. We'd love to hear what you guys Discord. thought of this episode. And a huge thank you to Clement for coming on this episode. A pleasure. It's been really interesting. Yep. Thank you for coming on. We hope you've learned something. Thank you for your input on this. And with that, I think we are ready to sign off. So goodbye. Okay. Goodbye. Thank you for listening. Bye. Thanks, guys. Bye.